15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week we're going to be talking about, well, unfortunately you probably know what we're going to be talking about. Um, we're going to be talking about the Republican National Convention, talking about the murders that occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, at the hands of a right-wing counter-protester, uh, and then something that might not have caught your eye, uh, the foundation of a far-right political party in the United States. So this week, uh, the week of August the 28th, 2020, is the week of the Republican National Convention, uh, where the Republican Party decides formally on its nominee for president. Although, of course, this year, uh, President Donald Trump is running for re-election, so it was pretty much no contest. Um, the convention featured, you know, the assortment of right-wing demagogues and ideologues and, you know, former players in, you know, the Republican Party, new rising faces, uh, such as Senator Cotton, uh, who's one of the most virulently racist members of the Republican Party in national office. Uh, other people who were supposed to be speaking at the convention, um, but who were cut include uh, Mary Ann Mendoza, uh, who was supposed to be speaking at the convention uh, as, you know, one of these, quote, like, moms who represent conservative values or something. Um, but she had to be cut because her Twitter rants include like literal references to anti-Rothschild, anti-Semitic conspiracies. Like this is nonsensically classic textbook stuff, like straight out of the 19th century crap. Um, it's actually really remarkable that this person uh, <laughs> didn't get the kind of vetting that uh, would have made her impossible as a contender in general. I mean, I've talked a lot uh, in this podcast, and if you've been paying attention, you would know that anti-Semitism really is majorly on the rise in the United States, especially in the Republican Party. And so the fact that there would be a virulent anti-Semite in the party or at the convention or speaking at the convention, that's not a surprise. That somebody would be using dog whistles, that's not a surprise. That happened a lot. Um but the fact that somebody who is just so openly anti-Semitic in a classical sense, in a way that really so far hasn't been a part of mainstream Republican dialogue yet, um, to me, it's a little bit questionable. You know, maybe it was a trial balloon. Um, maybe it wasn't quite so much a mistake after all. I guess we'll find that out later. The most important thing that occurred at the convention uh, is the speech given by President Donald Trump as he accepted the nomination. Um, most of it was pretty standard, although there are some bits that really leap out if you're paying attention, uh, such as his specific call-outs to uh, President Andrew Jackson, possibly the most racist of all American presidents, uh, although I would defer to a U.S. historian on that front. Uh, there's also a lot of his sort of more standard nationalism becoming apparent uh, as he continued his speech. Um, Anti-NATO, anti-NAFTA, uh, talking, you know, touting his own personal deals and stuff like that. Um, specific references to socialism as an internal enemy, you know, a quote, radical movement that tries to destroy and dismantle the American way of life. Uh, as you know, specifically referring to socialism as the enemy of the right wing, is a hallmark of fascism. Uh, fascist politics is particularly left-facing uh, in that it considers the main enemy of the right and of conservatives to be socialist. Uh, 
Of course, the main focus of the speech was twofold, uh, was his opponent, the Democratic nominee for president, Joe Biden, uh, who he tried to paint as incompetent, but also uh, as an ally, or at least a stooge, uh, for one of Trump's big rhetorical opponents, uh, China. Uh, the speech was continuously harping on China and its influence in the United States, its influence on the world stage. Uh, this is an aspect of Trump's nationalism, uh, which is a major constitutive part of far-right ideologies as opposed to mm, conservative ideologies, as opposed to um, Christian conservatism. isn't necessarily nationalist in the way that in the United States we usually associate it with that, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, in Trump, we see this anti-China nationalism, nationalism, this xenophobic nationalism, especially at the time of a pandemic, uh, which originated in China, according to most current scientific models. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um, but blaming China, this means that Trump blames China for all of the failures that his administration has seen over the last year. Uh, the dissolution of the American economy, uh, horrible employment numbers, uh, mass death. Uh, for Trump, this is an, you know, a quote, invisible enemy, uh, or a, you know, virus that he blames China for completely. Uh, and so these two enemies of the right, foreigners and socialists, combine in Trump's rhetoric to be an invisible yet internal enemy that needs to be killed. Uh, this is the kind of rhetoric he uses, you know, defeated, killed, it's a war, that kind of stuff. Now, who's going to fight that war? Now, Trump doesn't usually talk about scientists uh, or people like that fighting this war. Uh, the people that he talks about as the ones who are going to be able to save the United States from its invisible internal enemies uh, are cops. He talks about law enforcement and how much Americans love law enforcement, uh, which brings us to, unfortunately, uh, our second topic this week. Next, uh, I am going to talk about uh, a very serious tragedy that occurred in the United States recently. Um, this is in the wake of the police shooting of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin resident Jacob Blake, a black man who was shot in the back seven times, um, and as of the time of my recording, of this podcast is still in the hospital and uh, has lost the ability to walk, uh, apparently permanently. As a result of this police assault, uh, this attack on an innocent person, uh, there have been several protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin and throughout the country. Um, for those of you who don't know, Kenosha, Wisconsin is relatively close to the Milwaukee, Chicago area of uh, the Great Lakes region. Uh, so this meant that uh, protesters from the region uh, came to Kenosha to protest this police uh, assault, uh, attempted murder, but also counter-protesters came, and among them were uh, Illinois resident Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, Kyle is 17 years old, and he came to Kenosha, Wisconsin with an AR rifle, um, which is, of course, illegal for him to have. He's 17, and it's even more illegal for him to carry it across state lines. Um, he came there to protect businesses there uh, in Kenosha, and uh, video evidence suggests that the police there appreciated his and the other armed counter-protesters' presence uh, to the extent that they 
we're actually greeting them, we're engaging with them in a friendly way, would even provide them with water um, during the protest. Uh, these are people who are out after curfew, civilians, right? You know, supposedly they should be subject to exactly the same kind of scrutiny that the police were applying to protesters. This was, of course, not the case. Kyle Rittenhouse um, confronted protesters uh, with his rifle and shot one of them in the head. Uh, other protesters rushed him in an attempt to stop him from killing more people. Uh, he then shot two more protesters, one of them fatally, uh, one of them as of yet non-fatally. That person is still being uh, treated in the hospital. Kyle Rittenhouse then turned around and attempted, apparently, to surrender himself to the police, who completely ignored him. They just let him walk right past. He returned to his car, drove back home to Illinois, and fell asleep, uh, where he was then arrested by police in his hometown uh, for murder charges because he had murdered people. Now, the facts of this are still really coming out, and I... I'm, I'm, I was not a protester on the ground. I'm not particularly connected to those networks. I don't claim to have any particular expertise about exactly what happened on the ground. But what we do know is that uh, this, this murderer, Kyle Rittenhouse, is not alone. He is an example, just the most recent one, of precisely the kind of right-wing violence that we in the United States are unfortunately going to have to get used to uh, until it is defeated. Um, Kyle, a young white man, is the perfect person to recruit for a white nationalist fascist movement in the United States. Um, his politics were exactly in line with this kind of thing. Um, he was a ardent supporter of the police, uh, even organizing, you know, fundraisers for cops. Um, he was apparently critical of Black Lives Matter protesters to the extent that he believed that it was more important to show up with a gun to protect businesses in a town he didn't live in um, than it was to allow people to march in protest because police had shot a man who was trying to get in his car and drive with his children. This kind of violence, this partisan violence against the left, um, is exactly the kind of thing that fascists do for the state. Now, we all know the Black Lives Matter movement has taught many people who, you know, maybe weren't aware already, uh, the state is very fine with uh, killing people, specifically uh, killing black people, other people of color, indigenous people, uh, women, transgender people. Um, the state is very fine with applying violence to people who are not uh, a part of the ruling groups of the United States. However, in the United States, currently, the state is not engaged in a large amount of partisan violence. It doesn't really specifically target the left um, in the way that fascists do. And this is what fascists do for the state. This is what they do for conservatives. They perform dirty work. Um, they engage in political, targeted political violence, uh, which the state is either unwilling or uninterested or just, like, knows that somebody else is going to do it, right? Unfortunately, uh, as we continue to organize uh, for Black Lives, as we continue to fight the rise of fascism, uh, this kind of violence is not going to go away. It is becoming a more regular part of United States political life, uh, and it needs to be fought uh, with solidarity and with organizing. 
lastly, I'm going to talk about something which you might not have noticed um, if you don't particularly follow uh, the news of the right wing uh, in the United States, as I do. Uh, and it is the supposed foundation of a new nationalist right wing fascist party in the United States. Uh, they're going to be called the National Justice Party, uh, the National Justice Party. Um, and they are supposedly being founded by uh, members of an existing right-wing organization called the Right Stuff, uh, abbreviated TRS. Um, the members of this new party, supposedly, um, are, uh, well, they include uh, Alan Balog, uh, who is a former member of what was once the largest neo-Nazi organization in the United States, the National Alliance. Uh, it also includes former leaders of the Traditionalist Workers' Party, uh, which is a fascist party that uh, had been run uh, out of, you know, the Tennessee, Kentucky, Appalachia region um, by Matthew Heimbach, uh, who's somebody that I've spoken of previously on this podcast. Um, the Traditionalist Workers' Party is now defunct because of a sort of personal disagreement uh, amongst its uh, founding members uh, concerning an affair. Um but other members of the former TWP are now apparently going to be in this National Justice Party. Uh, it also includes members of the people who run the Daily Stormer, uh, which is an important fascist newsletter that has lasted very long in the United States. It predates the alt-right. Now, the thing is that we don't really know exactly what's going to happen with this party. Um, currently, they don't have any official paperwork formally made, uh, so they are a party in name only. They don't exist formally, officially. But the fact is that, like, even if they were to, like, actually really sign up, it's it's sort of unclear about what they'd be able to do, right? In much the same way that third parties of the left have a hard time in the United States, uh, a third party of the right, uh, an extreme right party, would have a difficult time gaining traction. Um, the Traditionalist Workers' Party was focused on extremely low-level local elections. Like, I'm talking, like, school board and city council of very small towns. Um, but that's potentially how a party could get started. Um, the fact is that the found a party, get seats, be a part of a political coalition, pathway to political power that many uh, groups in Europe, and therefore in a lot of political theory, uh, especially extremist political theory, have followed is impossible in the United States because of our two-party system. Uh, this party, the National Justice Party, can't do what the Nazi party did um, because they're because the United States isn't a parliamentary government. Uh, they can't gain, you know, 30% of the seats, gain hold of the chancellery, uh, and then dissolve the government, right? They can't do that. Uh, so it remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen with this. Um, but... Uh, if these people end up being important players on the right in the United States, well, you heard it here first. All right, that's uh, going to be it for the podcast this week. Uh, once again, we are 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast uh, on the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts for creating our graphics and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro and outro music. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next week. 